to episode 65 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. For many of us on the left, it would probably be uncontroversial to say that we seek a political horizon in which class society and all of its manifold expressions has been overcome. Wage labour, private property, the capitalist state, white supremacy, settler colonialism and anti-blackness. But what about the family? In a world that's often bereft of love, compassion and stability, it seems far more controversial to call for its abolition as well. Family abolition may be an alarming slogan, but this is what Emmy O'Brien argues for in her fantastic new book, Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communising of Care. Published by Pluto in June, the book traces the changing family politics of racial capitalism in the industrial cities of Europe and in the slave plantations and settler frontiers of North America, explaining the rise and fall of the housewife-based family form. From early Marxists to black and queer insurrectionists to today's mass protest movements, O'Brien finds revolutionaries seeking better ways of loving, caring and living. Taking us beyond the past and present of family politics, Family abolition also looks to the future, into a speculative vision of the revolutionary commune, imagining how care could be organised in a free society. Well, it's a real pleasure to be joined on the show today by Emmy O'Brien to talk about all of this and more. Before we get underway, a quick reminder that, as usual, podcast listeners can get 40% off the book on plutobooks.com for the next month. You just have to use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout. So, without further ado, here is M.E. O'Brien on Radicals in Conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. It's a real, real pleasure to have you here and to discuss Family Abolition, uh, the new book, which was published by Pluto in June. Yeah, I just finished reading it this morning, as is ever the case with these podcasts, uh, always down to the wire, but really, really excellent book. I've written my usual sort of five pages or whatever of questions, which I won't ask all of them. But anyway... Um, I suppose for listeners, uh, just to kind of summarise, you know, it's, yeah, Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communising of Care is the title. And I mean, the book is kind of structured in three parts, right? You you offer a diagnosis of the crisis of the family today, uh, and then you go on to explore the history of family forms and the changing visions of its overcoming. And then the final part of the book is this sort of speculative vision uh, for what family abolition could be in the future. And one thing that I think comes through quite early on in the book is I think you write that the family, the market and the state collectively enable the reproduction of capitalist society and that each institution is dependent on the others for its functioning, uh, which I guess is something we'll probably explore in the course of the conversation. But, um, you know, it makes it really immediately clear that family abolition isn't some sort of fringe issue or concern, that it's a topic that I think should interest anyone who is critical of capitalism in the state. So I'll start, I guess, with your own background and your own journey to family abolition politics what's kind of brought you here what's inspired you and or influenced your yeah thinking on this topic sure um so i i've been involved in queer and trans liberationist or radical circles for uh, 25 years or so and during that time i both um, participated in a lot of collective political protests and i'll come back to that in a moment and have really seen queer and trans people struggling around the question of family, both violence and alienation and reconciliation with families of origin, the kind of yearning and difficulty of chosen family, the recognizing 
recognizing in our relationships and our struggles around gender, whatever that looks like in the, its huge variety, that there's a push against the family form and a push towards its overcoming. And so family has been a theme in how I've thought about radical politics for a long time. I came to family abolition very specifically in a stranger way. I edited a collection on revolutionary feminist theory called Revolutionary Feminisms for the Communist Research Cluster. And the collection, you can find it online, and it follows um, radical thinking about gender from the 1890s into the 1970s. And I found, working on it, that over and over again, people were sort of articulating themselves as being against the family and for its overcoming in a variety of ways, but that that actually changed a lot what they meant by it. And so my first endeavor was to try to think through the sort of changing logic of what the family meant in the history of capitalist development. This led to an article in EndNotes. And through that, I really became increasingly convinced that the family was the necessary analytic pivot to thinking about gender and sexual freedom, to thinking about transformative ways of relating to each other, and to thinking about collective revolutionary social change. That without a critical analysis of family, that any sort of anti-capitalist politics is deeply, deeply limited. And that family abolition was a way of theorizing this in revolutionary terms, a necessary way, I think, if we actually want to get to a classless society of some sort. The other piece that I would add is as I worked on family abolition as a book and as a set of arguments, I really struggled for years around the question of what would family abolition mean to me, right? So I kind of catalog and map and explain what it has meant to people over the last 150 years. But like given the crisis of the last 40 years, given change in politics, given the sort of necessary engagement with all sorts of questions of state violence that have sometimes been a part of family abolition analysis historically, but not always. I needed to come up with an account of family abolition that I found convincing, uh, that spoke to me, and a way of theorizing that that linked it to the present somehow, not just a sort of purely abstract utopian idea. And what I ended up coming up with, and I imagine we're talking about this more, is to really look not primarily at the kin relations of chosen family or alternative households or the market or state programs, but really looking for how people take care of each other in mass protest. And during periods of prolonged insurrection, on barricades, at protest camps. And that is an analytic centerpiece in the book. And so my background, I spent the 90s and 2000s traveling between protest camps and supporting different types of direct kind of insurrectionary protest struggles had a really big impact in me being like, oh, that's the germ of family abolition right there. And that, that that made sense to me. It fit together politically and analytically. And in the book, I call that insurgent social reproduction. So it's really important to my own background in first anarchist and later communist circles, but also to ultimately to the book. Yeah, no, that's great. You've already yeah touched on, I guess, uh, a lot of the stuff that I was going to come to. So and it's interesting then to note that, you know, you start the book by talking about this experience of the Oaxaca Commune in 2006. And, you know, you've already mentioned how the family is a vital component to any sort of revolutionary politics, right? 
And I think you say, in, you know, in the introduction, in giving this example of the Oaxaca Commune, that actually the family was ultimately a tool of counterinsurgency and contributed to its failure. So could you say a little bit about, yeah, the Oaxaca Commune, for those who maybe aren't familiar, why it's relevant to these conversations about social reproduction, the family, um, and how, yeah, the family was maybe ultimately leading to its failure as a, as a revolutionary politics? Sure, yeah. I, I find it to be a very compelling and helpful way in for people reading the book. Often, I've been doing a lot of book events this summer, and I'll read the first seven pages of the book. So if somebody is trying to decide if they want to read the book, reading the first seven pages is a good place to start. And in part because I think it helps frame discussions effectively in a way that Talking about that, people's personal antipathies to families or countercultures, I think, in some ways leads to other directions. Um, so the Oaxaca Commune is a self-identified phrase for a set of protests in 2006 in uh, Oaxaca, Mexico. In the Oaxaca City, there had been teachers' uh, protests and strikes almost annually. And in 2006, police ended up attacking a teacher's protest camp. And they fought all day, and a lot of hundreds of people went to the hospital, and it was really quite brutal, and a lot of brutal state violence. And coming out of that, there was an upsurge of protest, and hundreds of organizations and protest groups came together, mostly indigenous people of Oaxaca, um, with the sort of teachers' union as a kind of central organizing force in a lot of it. And women ended up taking over the radio stations in town, uh, physically occupying them. And one of them uh, sort of on the air said, transmitting from the Oaxaca Commune in reference to the Paris Commune of 1871. And so a lot of people, you know, think in our day and age of the Commune as like a group housing or a rural commune or something. And in the communist tradition, commune has another meaning, which are these moments that the working class physically in mass takes over a city, forms radically democratic governing institutions and tries to figure out how to hold power. And there's the Paris commune and the Shanghai commune and the Oaxaca commune. And so that's, that's the meaning of commune very much as I use it in the book. And the Oaxaca Commune, there was a wonderful article by Baruch Capeller from Roar Magazine that makes the argument, so a lot of the American sort of taking into the Oaxaca Commune were these images of like buses on fire and Molotov cocktails and guys with masks on the front lines. And that was all a part of it. But Baruch Capeller really makes the argument that women, indigenous women, played a central driving role in the commune. And particularly turning the barricades into sites of insurgent social reproduction. That women moved out to living on the barricades. And the barricades were designed to physically defend their neighborhoods against nightly attacks by fascists and paramilitaries and police. So the police or fascists would roll in at night, burn people's houses, beat people up, shoot at people. And so the barricades were physically defending the neighborhood and they'd have to fight with the police each night. And people lived on the barricades full time. A lot of people, it was a general strike. A lot of people lived there instead of working. 
And women on the barricades made Motov cocktails, led workshops for their kids, argued over the radio with each other, identifying themselves by the name of their barricade, made coffee for people, cooked food, like all of the activities to keep the protest going. And many of those activities were labor that they used to do in isolated ways in their homes for their husbands and children. And now they were living with their children on the barricades. And those same activities of day-to-day -day reproduction become means of sustaining the protest. And so there are a lot of aspects of this example I find really compelling, right? That it's a mass working class insurgency that is this moment of a family abolition of overcoming the private household. It is not state driven or market driven, right? It's not about replacing the family with private services or with a generalized welfare program. There could be advantages to both, but I think they're ultimately not liberatory. And they're really driven by the self-activity, in this case, of working-class Indigenous women. And it's not a retreat from care, right? It's actually an expansion of people's care labor. So they're not refusing to take care of their children. They're bringing their children with them to the barricades. And so the counter-revolution, the, the repression of the Oaxaca commune took multiple forms, but one of the forms it took is husbands showed up to the barricades and are like, you are not cooking for me, you have to come back home. That men were enraged that their wives were no longer available to them for private social reproduction. And the reassertion of the private household, like, no, this reproductive labor needs to happen in the home, in the private household, under male authority, was key to the dismantling of the barricades and ultimately the defeat of the Oaxaca commune. And I think in other examples, we can see a lot of moments historically where the expansion, institutionalization, or imposing of the private household plays a very, very important role in defeating indigenous sovereignty movements, black insurgency, working class mass movements, peasant rebellions, that the family has played a very, very key role. And, you know, what exactly is meant by that has varied over time, but a private household, perhaps a nuclear family, perhaps male-dominated kinship arrangements, perhaps the privatization of social care, that uh, the family has played a very key role in the expansion and implementation of capitalism, in expanding and enforcing social control, and in defeating working-class rebellion. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be good to maybe talk about the history of the family form. Um... But perhaps first we could, I mean, a lot of our listeners will be probably familiar with the kinds of language that we're using here. But, you know, as you point out early on in the book and then again later on, I think, you know, family abolition as a phrase is kind of contentious and often misunderstood. Um, you know, it provokes genuine fears, uh, you know, even amongst progressive people. So could you tell us a little bit about what family abolition isn't and what it is feared to entail? Sure. So people have very conflictual relationships when they hear the phrase family abolition. I think there are a small number of people who happen to hate their families, who it immediately speaks to. And then, of course, there's a current and kind of communist feminist thought of thinking about family abolition, where there's some real understanding of what it might mean. But for a lot of people, um, the idea of family abolition immediately brings to mind the notion that the left wants to take your family away. 
And a number of things come to mind, right? Sort of state intervention, separating children from parents is, is a very common fantasy and fear. And it's obviously a pervasive reality in immigration policy and anti-Black child protective services. People imagine a sort of like people living alone, people living in isolation, right? People not having families to count on. And, you know, living in this world, living under racial capitalism is really extremely difficult. We're all always in a lot of crisis with a lot of precarity. And a lot of people really lack the forms of care that they need. And they see the family as their primary means of receiving that. That because care doesn't circulate in our society in other ways adequately at all, that the family people... Whether they have one or not, they imagine it as their main source of emotional, physical, psychic support throughout their lives. And so, you know, family abolition brings to mind the idea of this being withheld, being unavailable, and as it is for so many people who don't live in families right now, and uh, often, you know, if they're economically precarious, can very easily end up in really terrible situations, that, um, that getting the kind of care that is typically found in families is very hard to find anywhere else. I define family abolition in the book primarily as the expansion and universalization of the care that people need for human flourishing. So imagining the care that people receive in families being freely available, built into the collective social fabric of life. I have a couple of other definitions of family abolition. The first three chapters, the sort of diagnosis of the family, the present, offer three different definitions of family, each with its own corollary idea of abolition. The first is the family as the private household. So the household as a unit of social reproduction that I think has been universal to class society effectively and taking a particular form under capitalism. And here I really mean the destruction the overcoming of the private household as our primary economic unit. And one simple ethical principle, communist principle that I put out there is that um, who you love and who you happen to be related to should not determine your material well-being. So right now, who you are dating, who you live with, who you choose to sleep with, who your parents happen to be, who your children happen to be, have a giant impact on your life chances. And that this is a ludicrously terrible way of organizing society and is really integral to class society. The kind of desperation, the precarity, the scarcity of it, the accumulation of family-based fortunes or poverty. And that that's, you know, as thinking about a just society, that can't possibly be a part of it. And so that requires perhaps people still live together or love together or raise children together, but that that doesn't function as an economic unit that determines people's material circumstances. In the second chapter, I talk about violence, particularly racial state violence and child protective services and the state regulation and disciplining of families, but also the internal violence that the kind of privacy of the normative family enables, the interpersonal domination that is tied up with family relations. And so thinking about these two forms of violence, so here the family abolition would be the overcoming of a state system that 
regulates certain kind of families as normative and other kinds of care relations as under attack or pathological or subject to separation, and really imagining a means of addressing the internal violence in families that doesn't result to state intervention, which I think, given the history of white supremacy and settler colonialism, slavery in the U.S., and around the world in varying ways, there are some really good arguments against the state being the main mechanism of dealing with family violence. And then in the third chapter, I talk about using George Floyd calling out for his deceased mother as he was being murdered as a way of thinking about the family as a refuge, as a salvation, as people imagine it, as a form of care and love that need to be much more widely available throughout society. So, you know, the overcoming of the private household, the destruction of a racial, gendered, heteronormative system of family policing and family violence and generalizing of human care. So these become what I, how I theorize family abolition throughout the book. And then in the historical chapters, get into a lot of other meanings of it. So you asked what family abolition is not. Family abolition is not increasing atomization and isolation. Family abolition is not the current forms of racial state violence that police certain kinds of families at the expense of others. Family abolition is not the sort of acceleration of the neoliberal forces of isolation and atomization that a lot of us struggle with. And family abolition, frankly, is not the individualist refusal of family. Although I think that desire has something to do with family abolition, when done in sort of individual lifestyle circumstances, it has real limitations. And then I theorize many forms, I, I like historically follow many forms of family abolition as it's been theorized by different radical social movements and ultimately come out and reject forms of family abolition that are about absorbing the care of the family into the state apparatus. Although there's some positive examples of that, I ultimately reject them. And I reject forms of family abolition that are really about replacing the care relations within the family with exclusive market transactions. Although I think there are also some very progressive examples of that. I think that both of those end up reinscribing capitalist society in different kinds of ways. Mm, well, there's a lot there. I mean... It'd be good to talk about, yeah, the, the history of the family form, because, you know, the, the family has like a private household that's like an economic unit, you know, the male breadwinner form of the family, um, you know, a lot of this and the kind of ideological baggage that comes along with it, I suppose, is we're talking about, you know, the development of the bourgeois family, right? I mean, it seems to be very intimately tied up with the history of capitalism, you know, the history of this sort of normative family form. Could you, yeah, I guess, expand a little bit on the relationship between private property and, you know, property accumulation and the family? This is, I guess, in one of the historical chapters, you know, you're talking about Marx and Engels and their politics of family abolition. So, yeah, some thoughts on any of this aspect of the history would be great. Sure. Um, interestingly, during the book tour, people ask about the historical chapters the least, although they're really a huge part of the book. 
but I think it might appeal to to listeners more familiar with Marxist theory and history and the history of socialist movement. So, you know, generally, I think private households have been a universal feature of class society and that the abolishing the private household, overcoming the private household is a necessary dimension of overcoming class society. So that's a kind of core argument of the book. But family has meant some very particular things in the history of capitalism. Um, and has never kind of included all private households, exactly, has been much more selective in who's included and who's not. And there was a lot of political struggle today and historically between, you know, right-wing and progressive forces about who counts as a family, whether queer people count as a family, whether single parents count as families, whether incarcerated people have families, right? Like there's a, a long history around this in trying to think about what constitutes a family. But there is a very particular history of how we imagine the normative family. And my argument is that took shape during European industrialization in the form of the bourgeois family, that the division between the private household, the domestic sphere where no waged activities take place, where it's all based on interpersonal domination and love between parents and children, between husband and wife, where they are functioning as a closed economic unit separated from the rest of the world, although dependent, of course, on constant help from maybe domestic staff or state programs or market subsidies or whatever that form that that takes. And then the, the father or some people cross out of the family, out of the household in order to be active in politics or to be active in the market as a capitalist. There were elements of the bourgeois family that really differed from aristocratic families before them. And a lot of how we think about families today really dates back to bourgeois society. And that it's a form, I mean, I, a phenomenon that I'm curious about is as capitalism has taken shape around the world, uh, this family form, one, was exported as part of colonialism. It became a huge part of colonial occupations around the world as the kind of Europeans kind of running the colonial show organized themselves in the bourgeois families. And there was a lot of effort under colonialism of really Im imposing and enforcing this family form. But also uh, ruling classes around the world have increasingly adopted bourgeois family forms as they have adapted to being capitalists, that it's a form that's very well suited to private inheritance and managing of corporate power and other things. So when Marx and Engels was writing, this family form was completely unavailable to any working class people at all. So they say abolishing the family is overcoming bourgeois society and that capitalism has already destroyed the working class family and the peasant family. And I think that they were describing a real phenomenon in mid 19th century Europe. But what they don't foresee is that towards the end of the 19th century, a number of different forces, both structural and political, sort of come into play that enable a section of the working class to get enough power, enough resources, enough support to be able to win what gets called the family wage. So a means of having a working class housewife at home 
children enrolled in public school, not working outside the home, and a father who is the main breadwinner, right? And so I call this the housewife-based family form or the male breadwinner family form. And that, that what's different about the late 19th century than the mid-19th century is a section of the white working class in Europe and the United States are able to obtain this family form that previously was only available to the bourgeoisie. So what the politics of family changed a lot in the socialist struggle and sort of defending socialist families, working class families, became a very important part of socialist politics. And this really changed the meaning of family abolition. And I talk about that around Alexander Kolontai. And so this sort of moment of large numbers of more privileged working class people accessing the male breadwinner, family wage, family form from the late 19th century into the 1970s really transformed working class politics because it severed what had previously been a pretty organic linking between people employed in industrial manufacturing and stable jobs on the one hand and the poor on the other, right? So sex workers, queer people, colonized subjects, right? Like the disabled, those unable to work, right? The the mass, the lumpen proletariat, which is a term that Marx and Engels use, but it takes on a very different meaning at the end of the 19th century as the respectable working class starts defining socialist politics in opposition to the lumpen proletariat, which is very different than how Marx and Engels theorized this sort of overall downward fragmenting pressure on the working class earlier. And I think this severing between the poor and the working class is still with us today and still haunts socialist politics. And the respectability of the family form was very, very key to that. I argue, and a lot of other people have, that since the 1970s, there have been economic and political forces that have unfolded a kind of protracted crisis in capitalism that has really made it impossible for working class people to live with a housewife anymore. That that sort of moment of the normative family being available to what at that time was, you know, by the post-war period was often called middle-class people, that that just doesn't exist in the same way anymore at all. And that our politics of family, our, how we envision family abolition, can't just be the refusal of this normative housewife family form, because that family form no longer dominates left politics, uh, although some people want to go back there, and it no longer is central to working class people or middle class people because of the protracted economic crises of the last few decades. Mm. It's interesting to hear when you've been out on the book tour that people don't tend to ask so much about the historical aspects. I mean, that's usually the bit that I find most exciting. Um, and I've got to say, you know, I found the the chapters dealing with, you know, North American history, settler colonial projects, you know, in, in Canada and America, you know, fascinating and obviously horrifying because, you know, as you note in the book, you know, the history of the family in this context is also the history, you know, of white supremacy and genocide. Um, could you say a little bit more about the function of the family in these settler colonial projects in, yeah, Canada and America and the impact on, yeah, you know, indigenous people and enslaved people? Absolutely. 
So unfortunately, the book doesn't deal extensively with the global South. I think there's a lot to say there. But there's a chapter focusing on the family politics of slavery and genocide. And I focus on the slave-based plantation economies of the Caribbean and the United States and the settler colonial frontiers of Canada and the U.S. and draw a lot from some wonderful indigenous theory and black studies history. And so these systems... I think there's more interconnection here than I fully acknowledge, but I divide them up as there being a moment where the main logic was trying to destroy the kin relations of people of color and trying to expand the white normative family as a basis social order. So on the settler frontier, this took the form of mass murder of indigenous people, um, the implementation of Indian schools, right, uh, indigenous boarding schools in both the U.S. and Canada, and this relentless attack on trying to separate families and their children in indigenous communities. And meanwhile, the state, you know, a lot of early settlers are men. And the state was really trying to figure out how to build a new settler society. And they knew that what they needed to do that were families. They needed women. They needed stable households. They needed parents raising children. They needed white families. And so you see over and over and over again these sort of settler colonial officials being like, how can we get more women here? How can we get people to marry? How can we make sure they don't divorce? And they define this in opposition to the significant diversity of relational and gender and sexual practices in indigenous North America, you know, that widely varied. Some context monogamy is quite common, but the private household, as it was understood in a European and capitalist context, was really unheard of. But there are many, many examples of gender diversity and relationship diversity in indigenous life. And so it's really about exterminating that and expanding the white settler family as a foundational core of settler civilization. On the slave plantations, that took the form of natal alienation, the term from Black studies of the separating of children and their parents, their mothers, which was a central part of slavery and one of the great horrors of slavery. And so in both cases, there's this real attack on care relations between people of color. And in the plantations, the bourgeois white family was really central to slave-owning enterprises, to managing. They sort of imagined themselves as sort of like an old feudal aristocracy, but they were really very much capitalist families and really organized in the service of racial capitalism. Then I follow in the same chapter, I follow a sort of shift that happens. And the shift is from primarily seeking to destroy care relations to trying to impose a white European family form onto indigenous people and black people. And that took a number of different forms. The Indian schools, I don't talk about this in the book, but one of the things they're really oriented around was training children in how to have a domestic household modeled after European households. I talk a lot about allotment policy, which is about breaking the collective sovereign power of tribes of indigenous nations and splitting up their land and allocating it based on male-headed 
households, and that being central to trying to destroy the collective ownership and collective political power of indigenous people. So the imposing of the private household as a property form was central to anti-indigenous genocide. Self-consciously, they really knew that indigenous nations couldn't fight back if they were divided up based on family ownership rather than collective ownership. And then in the South, in uh, the slave plantations, they're the end of slavery at the end of the, in the United States, at the end of the U.S. Civil War, opened a period of really tremendous, vibrant um, political experimentation that included Black people experimenting with non-normative family forms. And that by into the 1870s, there was really an intense pushback against this, a counter-revolution, a retaking of power by the old uh, former slave owners. And by the 1890s, had formed a new system of white supremacy uh, that became known as Jim Crow. And one of the elements of Jim Crow that's not widely appreciated is that it is a system of coerced, enforced, monogamous, heterosexual marriage that... In order to rent land under a Jim Crow system, black people had to be married in heterosexual relationships. And if they separated, they could no longer rent land. And so enforcing normative monogamy on black people, enforcing heterosexuality, was a really major part of Jim Crow. And I find this very helpful for sort of rethinking how to politically interpret the very low rates of marriage in Black communities with the end of Jim Crow and the Great Migrations North and the kind of urban Black communities of the 20th century. So this is a little bit of this history of thinking about the family as integral to white supremacy and white supremacy as integral to the family and that being a part of the development of racial capitalism in North America. Mm. There's so much kind of in the history that we could talk about that you've kind of touched on. So maybe we can leave there. I mean, you, you've already mentioned Alexandra Kollontai in the you know early Bolshevik context, and the kind of the workers' movement. This idea of you know respectability politics and how the family fits in with that. Following the workers' movement and that that sort of idea of yeah the male breadwinner household is kind of integral to that politics you talk about the movements of the you know the red decade right the 60s and the 70s what are some of the i guess yeah the movements or intellectual currents that you talk about in this chapter and what are some of their sort of insights what are they kind of rebelling against in terms of the family form as it was and and what can we draw from them today and what are some of the limitations i guess as well so um, there's a lot there around the thesis, the workers' movement and whatnot, that might be a little bit hard to unpack. But so I, the workers' movement is a way of theorizing the history of socialism to describe this very particular moment from the roughly the 1880s, 1890s to the 1970s in terms of socialism taking a very particular form of imagining a worker society. So rather than working class struggle being about the overcoming of class, of class society, it actually being about generalizing and imposing working class experience throughout society as a whole. And importantly, the thesis of the workers' movement is that this was really shared across the board by all kinds of socialist, communists, and anarchists, that the working class movements, particularly of Europe and the United States and to some extent elsewhere, that really all shared this idea that they, what they were fighting for was a workers' 
society. And my contribution to that is really arguing that the sort of notion of the worker capable of governing was deeply tied up with accessing this particular family form as a source of respectability. So this thesis, how to locate the mass rebellions around the world in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the Red Decade, as it's known in France, is uh, kind of complex. That on the one hand, this is sort of the end of the period of workers' movement, but still very much in its logic and in its coordinates. And there's both an effort around generalizing access to the workers' movement, a real demand that queer people, black people, women, are also workers, also belong in the working class, also belong in socialist politics, also belong in the revolution. You know, a sort of vision of expanding how we think about revolutionary agency to include housewives, to include, in some cases, sex workers, to include the very poor, the lumpen proletariat. And so this sort of expansion of the workers' movement, it's sort of gaining access to it in a way and its benefits, right? So huge struggles around access to welfare support, access to labor unions by, among others, Black Americans. And then also this effort around overcoming it, right? This identifying work as a problem, identifying the nuclear family as a problem, these things that were like core principles of the workers' movement, and identifying social states and bureaucratic labor unions as the problem, right? The kind of core institutions of the workers' movement. So it's both like within the logic of the workers' movement, but also seeking to overcome it. And I I would argue not quite overcoming it, but sort of pointing the way to the possibility of its overcoming, and that those movements were ultimately defeated, and then the workers' movement was destroyed not by these rebellions, but by capitalism, by the crisis of capitalism since the 70s, and there's a lot to say about that. So in terms of family abolition, I'm very interested in a handful of specific struggles in the Red Decade. One was wages for housework, radical feminism, gay liberationists, and the welfare rights movement. So just thinking about the welfare rights movement specifically, this is at the end of the 1960s, black women have moved to urban cities in the U.S. in large numbers and are excluded from the welfare provisions, historically very excluded, but continue to be marginalized from welfare provisions that were won by the socialist and working class struggle of the 30s and start organizing militant direct actions in expanding access to cash transfer benefits and other forms of support for single black mothers in urban cities. And there's a lot of struggle around that. And interestingly, there are many aspects of this struggle that have an element that's against work and against the family. Uh, so just one example that I'm really moved by is that there used to be a practice in welfare departments where welfare was only supposed to be for women who didn't have a man to support them. So they would do midnight raids with police and social workers in the middle of the night to see if a woman was sleeping with a man. And, you know, this is a tremendous sexual coercion, sexual violence, right? Like a real invasion of people's households. And they fought using direct action and legal battles and managed to eliminate those raids as a phenomenon. And this is an example of black women fighting for sexual pleasure, 
right? In a moment of queer rebellion, black straight women in this case, saying we should be able to sleep with men if we want to. We should be able to have casual sex if we want to. Like the state shouldn't have any say in the sex that I have. And this is a kind of refusal of the normative family, right? It's like asserting their right not to get married and an embrace of sexual freedom and really emerging out of working class black women's struggle in the U.S. And I find that just so powerful and moving in thinking about what family abolition could have meant at this moment. Hmm. You know, we've touched on the fact that this kind of particular idea of the you know nuclear family form that sort of norm is less and less attainable in reality you've already mentioned sort of that but its culture and ideological power doesn't necessarily seem to have waned with with that kind of lack of attainability could you maybe speak very briefly about some of the political currents you know that still today you know refer to the family as the basis of like social order and morality because i mean obviously we see it uh, you know, on the right, in na- various nationalist projects. But, um, you know, there are elements of the left that still will kind of invoke the family, I suppose. So um, how is it still persisting, this power of this form? So on the right, I think we're really seeing this sort of intensification of a fascist politics of the family and really arguing that we are facing a kind of severe civilizational crisis, that the spread of queer people, the political rebellions by black people, the presence of migrants, the proliferation of sort of multiculturalism, that all of these things are like severe and profound crises to social order, to a white society, it takes to European society, it takes a number of different forms, and that aggressive, systematic mass action, including violent terror and state policy, are really needed to to reverse it, to reverse the social gains of progressive movements over the last 50 years. And the family is really the centerpiece of this. Like the family is the base of social order, the white family as the sort of bulwark or defense against invasion by its queer and black and migrant others, and the family as the core romantic ideological centerpiece of right-wing thinking. So that that's one whole domain, the family as a fascist imaginary. I think liberals, you know, the the kind of family politics of liberalism are extremely familiar to people, this sort of assumption that the family should provide an enormous amount of unwaged labor and care for people in ways that enable them to reduce the state support, for example, that's been a huge part of welfare. Austerity is increasing pressure on family members to provide unwaged care. You know, the sort of romanticizing the family while actually promoting economic policies that really undermine it, that put it into crisis. And this, you know, sort of generalized assumption that the family is the, like, basis social order, but in a kind of consensual, chosen, you know, individualist way of that we sort of everyone desires families and everyone should function as a family and a family is how things work. But then there's the social democratic imaginary. And here I think 
the pervasive romanticization of the family is quite nefarious and quite dangerous. So there are, of course, political contexts where specific struggles need to be fought and framing those in terms of defending the family could be strategically advantageous. I have one chapter on reform and propose a number of progressive reforms that I call progressive anti-family reforms. And a number of those have been fought for by social Democrats as pro-family reforms. And, you know, I think there's some strategic logic to doing so, you know, to talking about queers who say love makes a family and social Democrats who are like, we need policies to defend and help out working families, given how hard it is to maintain household. Of course, it's incredibly hard for working families to survive. And so state supports, you know, are obviously something that we need, but that I really question social Democrats aggressively opposing family abolition, which is very, very common. There's been so much hostility to family abolitionists like Sophie Lewis and whatnot, and to exclusively frame the social democratic imaginary in terms of the family. Historically, social democracy was very tied up with white families, with assuming the private household as a unit of social reproduction. And that came at a tremendous cost of the well-being of queer people, migrants, poor people, black people choosing not to marry, right? There's a long history of all these people being excluded from social democracy because they formed families at low rates or the families they formed weren't recognized by the state. I also think it really fundamentally misreads how rebellions unfold, that social democrats sometimes fall into the trap of thinking about politics as this very staid, electoral, controlled affair, when actually working class rebellions constantly move past the family, whether or not people describe it that way, like the family's very poorly suited to sustaining rebellion. And when people participate in rebellion, part of what is so transformative is the experience moments of solidarity and collectivity and collective reproduction that go way beyond the family and that those are not available most of the time and how transformative that is to encounter. And I would argue that although, of course, many people desire families and are very explicit about desiring families, that actually we all also desire more than the family. We do not want to be financially dependent on our partner. We don't want to be exclusively limited to the private household. That the kind of collectivity people encounter outside of their families is really integral to a decent life. And the collectivity of collective rebellions is really integral to forming the revolutionary subjects of radical politics. And that social democrats, to the extent to which they limit their thinking to the terms and logic of family, they're actually really cutting off and restricting um, the kinds of working class desires, freedom dreams, yearnings that animate struggles that both include a desire for the family and also go against it and beyond it and push past it. And that that pushing past the desire for the family, I think, is why, why I consider the term abolition really essential to use, to recognize that there's a desire in working class struggle that always pushes beyond the family. Mm. 
I mean, you've already mentioned like Sophie Lewis. There's clearly been a, a burgeoning sort of interest in family abolition in the last few years. Why do you think that's yeah happened now? Why do you think that is part of political discourse now? I think the most straightforward thing to say is that since the 2008 economic crisis, large numbers of queer and trans people have gotten into Marxism and anti-capitalist thinking. Pluto did a wonderful collection, Transgender Marxism, that's just magnificent. And like queers and trans people have been grossly overrepresented in every major social struggle since 2008 and have been become a really active and visible part of socialist politics in every organization and space that they're not treated like shit in. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think that's the most straightforward thing, that lots of trans people thinking about capitalism and family abolition emerges out of that. And I'm very indebted to Jules Gleason and Kate Doyle Griffiths as two figures who are very, very important in kind of returning family abolition. I think there are deeper reasons, and I address these a little bit in my article in the first issue of Parapraxis, which is a magazine on psychoanalysis and politics that I added, and the first issue was about the family problem, so sort of this encounter between psychoanalytic critiques of the family and feminist, uh, black struggle, working class, Marxist thinking, lots of other currents, critiques of the family. And so I, I pose the question there of why is family abolition kind of returning to the historical stage at the same moment that intensifying fascist romanticization of the family is proliferating? And I make the argument sort of drawn on psychoanalysis and drawing on Marxism that I think the unfolding crisis in working class life since the 1970s has sort of reached a crescendo in the last decade that has made it impossible that in the 1980s and 90s, it was possible for people to be like, well, queers live differently. They're weird. Black women don't marry. There's something wrong with them. And lots of women have to work, but mostly that the sort of imaginary of housewives could still be defended, could still be preserved. It could still be perhaps a little bit expanded or reimagined the kind of normative working class family or the middle class family, as it's widely called. But that since then, things have unfolded that have made it impossible to maintain that illusion. Everyone knows this kind of normative family of bourgeois society is gone, that it's no longer accessible to people, that the crisis since the 70s have made this impossible, that no one, people are not able to support a housewife. And thanks to expanding queer and trans struggle and ongoing feminist struggle and ongoing black struggle, lots of people are able to articulate more and more, maybe this isn't how I want to live. Maybe this isn't what we should be fighting for. Maybe the housewife-based family form was something to reject. So you have on the one hand a sort of erosion economically, and on the other hand, lots of people desiring something else, and that this has gone on for a while, and that it's um it's a deep crisis in how society imagines patriarchal authority of like who is in charge, who is sort of organizing authority for society in the household. And that the kind of idea of a man in charge is no longer really tenable for huge numbers of people. And that there are two really different responses to this. And one is this sort of fascist effort at reclaiming patriarchal authority, but it's not easily accessible. So it takes this kind of 
I call it a kind of zombie resurrection of the dead father, right? This like these figures of infinite enjoyment like Trump or whatnot, who like people delight in the fact they can do whatever they want. They can break all boundaries. They can violate all rules and they can like rule in a kind of absolute pleasure. And this all has a lot of roots in psychoanalytic theory. This is the sort of fantasy of the primal father. And then on the other hand, that it's opened up the space for people to actually reconnect to an historical tradition of family abolition and to begin to recognize that like the old family is dead and maybe what we want is something different. And what that difference is might take some theorizing, some effort, some struggle, some unfolding to really be able to articulate and be able to imagine and be able to define. And that calling our politics family abolition is a kind of starting place of trying to imagine what that might be. Mm. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that the book ends with this speculative sort of imagining or vision of what a family abolitionist sort of politics in the sort of revolutionary commune might might look like and you don't kind of offer this last sort of chapter or two chapters or whatever it is as a sort of blueprint but it's really interesting nonetheless um yeah i mean what do you think this kind of speculative writing can why is it important to include in this book even if you don't present it as this kind of programmatic thing yeah so uh, me and my best friend of man Abdahadi wrote a novel last year called everything for everyone in oral history of the new york commune 2052 to 2072 on common notions and people really love the novel it's a lot of fun it's sort of fictional oral histories with people about their role in a successful global communist revolution and there's a lot about transformed social reproduction in it sort of what replaces the private family and why why people desire a kind of different way of organizing child care and elder care and cooking and all these things and so that was a chance at sort of thinking very speculatively and then i chose in this book to include a speculative chapter of the commune to come that kind of emerges out of my thinking about insurgent social reproduction and and it's sort of sketching in theoretical terms a little bit of the sort of idea of communes as they were in everything for everyone that out of collective mass struggle so that the private household breaks starts breaking down in the crisis of capitalism in struggle people to put together new forms of collective social reproduction like protest kitchens and whatnot and then these become the sort of nucleus of the new form of social reproduction being communes of a couple hundred people. So like a, a large apartment building or a city block or a small residential neighborhood around a school where people on that scale are problem solving together about how to acquire, cook and distribute food, how to manage child care, how to manage elder care, how to how to live together. And they might still family together within that. They might still pair off and raise children, but that the commune functions as a primary economic unit. So that if you break up with your partner, you're still part of the same commune. You just move to a different apartment building. But like your economic well-being isn't transformed by that shift, but that there's still a sort of capacity for collective democratic deliberation about commune decisions and whatnot. And there are all sorts of potential problems with this vision. It's just put out speculatively and put out kind of recognizing, thinking about the barricades as a starting place. 
But I've come to believe very strongly in the need on the left for speculative visions. And I talk about this a lot, I think about it a lot, that, you know, Marx and Engels had this very articulate critique of what they called the utopian socialists. So I engage a lot with Charles Fourier in this book and elsewhere, and as one example of a utopian socialist. And the utopian socialists were coming up with all these ideas, among other things, to overcome the private household and bourgeois monogamy and capitalism and private property and their visions were very exciting to large numbers of people but Marx and Engels I think were very astute in being like they have no model of social change they have no idea how change happens so they think if they come up with a blueprint and sell it to people then it will be implemented and you see examples of like Saint-Simon and Kant like sending their blueprints to generals and bourgeois industrialists being like this is my vision of the utopia and you know they have no strategy for how to seize property or anything like that so not surprisingly where we see these utopian plans actually implemented are in settler colonial projects where the land has been taken through genocidal dispossession and where its land is much more widely available and they try to do something different. And kibbutz of Israel, I think, are a really good example of that, where the genocidal dispossession of Palestinians was a necessary foundation for this like socialist experimentation. And that that really corrupted the socialist project by putting in the service of a militarized settler state. And Marx and Engels are like, the only way social change happens is the contradictions of capitalist society produce a group of people who have it in their interest, the proletariat, to overcome capitalism. And they discover that commitment through struggling around concrete issues of survival that they care about. And that, you know, basic model, I think, is really quite accurate and quite helpful. And they're correct in condemning the utopian socialists. So I'm really not offering this, as you put it, as a blueprint, as a guide for somebody to follow. But that I, I think this Marxist critique of utopian thinking has in some ways been taken too seriously and not recognizing the extent to which all the time when we struggle in the present, we are implying, articulating, gesturing towards different kinds of revolutionary horizons. And these revolutionary horizons, we're trying to theorize about them, we're trying to envision about them, and we're trying to talk about them. And we do that every single time we show up at a march, we make a sign, we go out on strike, we knock door to door with other tenants. And those horizons sometimes are revolutionary, they're sometimes reformist, but that those horizons are gesturing in a speculative way towards the future. And that that is a necessary and appropriate part of theorizing about political struggle in the present. It's a necessary part of desiring something more and something different than capitalist society. And part of why we need speculation is to allow ourselves to desire more and desire differently. One example that I think about a lot is I used to organize with Critical Resistance, a prison abolitionist organization, and I was been exposed for a long time to prison and police abolition rhetoric and thinking, and this has been an important part of the Black nationalist tradition of certain communist and anarchist currents and prisoner struggle broadly in the U.S. But 
it was it's pretty marginal, uh, I think by and large, and particularly police abolition, like outside of some serious revolutionaries. I think if you had asked me ten years ago who wanted to abolish police, I could have like listed them off, right? Um, and then in the George Floyd rebellion, suddenly abolishing police became something that like tens of thousands of teenagers were arguing about on social media, and like they were trying to theorize communism. They were trying to theorize the overcoming of private property. And they were doing that with this slogan of abolishing police. They were thinking about revolutionary horizons. And they were doing so on a mass scale that among other things was linked to like burning down a police station in Minneapolis to, you know, a couple hundred cities being under National Guard occupation to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people being in constant rebellion, 26 million people marching against police, like um, 14,000 people were arrested, right? Like this huge rebellion, arguably the biggest rebellion of U.S. history, sort of created this moment we're talking about police abolition became a concept that made sense to large numbers of people. And that is science fiction. Like, that is speculative, utopian visioning in the present. So I've come to really believe that we need to incorporate utopian speculative visioning in all the work that we do and acknowledge the dimension of our organizing that's about gesturing to the future. One simple way of doing that that I've done in writing workshops and whatnot is to like have people think about struggles they've been a part of and have people think about what would it mean if that struggle won? What would that look like? And who knows? Of course, whatever people say is not at all what's going to happen in the future, but they are saying something about what they desire right now and that that's worth doing. Oh, Michelle, I think that's a lovely place to leave it. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you about this really exciting book, Family Abolition. Um, as I say, it's out with Pluto now. People can go to plutobooks.com and pick up a copy. Um, thank you very much. Of course. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much for having me on and for all your work in making this podcast happen. That was Emmy O'Brien on Radicals in Conversation. If you want to find out more about family abolition, you can find the book on plutobooks.com. Just use the coupon podcast at the checkout to get 40% off the print book or the ebook. If you've enjoyed today's show, then please don't forget to like, share and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back next month with another episode of Radicals in Conversation. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.